Hi, I'm Charlotte. And I'm Lauren. Our pronouns are she, her. This is Demyth Turns the Page. Our special episodes where we unravel curses. We deal with our trauma. And we speak to Frances Harding about Unraveler. Hello. Hi, Francis, and thank you so much for joining us. Please tell our listeners all about yourself. Well, thank you very much for having me. Uh, my name's Francis Harding. Uh, my pronouns are she, her. And I write very strange books for children and YA readers. I've written 10 so far. They're all fantasy. They're all quite dark. Most of them are mysteries and adventures as well. And they're all quite weird. Wow, 10. Yes, yes. The 10th out just this month. Congratulations. Thank you very much. And this was definitely, definitely dark and weird. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but before we get into, into what you've written, what kind of books do you like to read? Has there been like a real standout novel for you recently? Uh, I'm fairly omnivorous. Uh, and I, I tend to read quite a mix of books including some that are, are, have been written quite a long time ago. So sometimes I'll have read an awful lot of books in, the, in a year, none of which have been published in that year. Um, so I finally got round to reading American Gods recently. That probably gives you some idea. And I've also been known to comfort read Victorian melodramas, amongst other things. Oh, my God. <laughs> is that comforting? It is quite, actually. Uh, uh, in, in a sort of... <laughs> Sometimes in an unintentionally humorous kind of way, but they've got, they're just quite fun. I mean, I comfort read flowers in the attic, so I can't really talk. <laughs> so we're all a bit strange here. There is no book well, something, Sometimes you want something that's just a bit larger than life. You'll have to recommend some good Victorian melodrama to me because I'm quite curious. Even if you can't think of it now, just like email me a few. Well, it's probably unfair to describe him just as a, a, a writer of melodramas, but I'm, I'm very fond of Wilkie Collins. Uh, who some people say uh, wrote the first detective novel, The Moonstone. Uh, he was a very good friend of Dickens, and he also wrote one of the first novels that had a female detective, amongst other things. Oh, that's pretty cool. Yes, it is pretty cool. Um, I'm very fond of him. You know, basically, you have to abandon your sense of plausibility by the door, accept all the coincidences you can eat, and just go for it. Well, talking about leaving all of your plausibility at the door, yes. Unraveler. <laughs> yes, Unraveler is my latest <laughs> book. And again, it's it's dark YA fantasy. And yes, it's... Should I say a little bit about it? Please do. It's set in an imaginary country called Radith. And Radith has a couple of peculiarities. Uh, although at first sight it seems like quite a, a common sense sort of a place with its its bustling hill towns and and its and its you know, rather rather impressive canals, if you look at the edge of it, there's this strip called the Wilds running along the coast, uh, an area of misty marsh woods, which don't look like much from the outside. But if you go down amongst them, you discover this is actually a vast realm of dark dreams and strange creatures where anyone you meet could be anything. So that's one of the peculiarities. The other peculiarity of Radith is that anybody living in that country who is consumed by rage or hatred or pain 
develops the ability to curse. They can release a curse upon their enemies, which might steal their shadow or turn them to stone or transform them into a mosquito or something like that. And it's almost impossible to remove these curses. Only one person can. And his name's Kellen. He's 15 years old. And he's got a very big mouth and a very short fuse. <laughs> I, I'm glad I don't live <laughs> in this place because I think I would be birthing curse eggs all over the place. <laughs> so before we get into the actual story, oh my God, is the cover beautiful. It's so pretty. It makes me very happy. And you said before we started recording that you loved gold foiling or you love foiling and this book has beautiful spider's web that is gold foil and a few little symbols on it as well which i think are are relevant to the story yes most of them relate in some way or another to a curse that occurs in the book there's one symbol that that's, that's sort of indirectly related to curses and that's uh an image that looks a lot like a spider. How much input did you have? How much input did you have to the to the cover design or did you send it off and trust someone else complicitly? Oh, it's usually send off and trust. Um, covers are arranged by my publishing company. Uh, they will communicate with the artist who I don't generally meet and there will presumably be a number of different drafts before eventually uh, an image will be sent to me for my feedback. And it has to be said, usually I say, (laughs) that looks great. Um, Occasionally there have been covers where I have had a bit of input, where there's been uh, a a figure on the cover that actually didn't look like my main character or where I thought there there was a bit of a problem with the vibe or something like that. And to my publisher's credit... They have generally uh, listened to me when I've when I've said these things, you know, um, which is you know, something they don't actually have to do, but uh, it has meant that I've I've been happy with pretty much all of my covers, and in most cases I've had no comments at all. They've just they've just been beautiful. I can't imagine what it must be like to get something and hate it. <laughs> yes, that would be bad. Uh, I do know some authors who got stuck with covers that were they were nice covers they were just completely inappropriate for the book which is of course disastrous because it means the people who would love the book will never find it and um the people who buy the book thinking it's a totally different kind of book are then are then somewhat disappointed now i I think i've i have been extremely lucky i mean a lot a lot of the the covers that end up on my books are just are just really beautiful it's probably bad form to sit there as an author stroking your own book, isn't it? <laughs> no, definitely not. Like some kind of James Bond villain with a cat. <laughs> Absolutely, just like that. No, I, I do it to books that I buy because it's like, oh, you're so pretty. <laughs> so, And also you have beautiful spine details on the actual like naked book, which are the same as the symbols on the front. These are just in gold foiling. So even naked, the spine of the book is pretty. Like, what more do you want, really? Some of them also have sprayed edges. 
Yes, I do. I, <laughs> I waited longer for my my side spray edge edition from Waterstuff. I find all this very exciting. It was worth the wait. <laughs> I'm glad that you're excited. It's nice to see people that get excited about these details. <laughs> Where did the inspiration for the book come from? Because it's such a unique idea. I think, uh, well, the inspiration for any book tends to come from a number of different sources. And sometimes it's it's very hard to chart them all. It's a bit like saying, where does a river start? All these little streams flow into the, the main current and gradually sort of join up. There are some very definite influences, though. And in the case of Unraveler and the actual curses, uh, a lot of the influences are folklore, fairy tales, uh, one or two old ballads. Certainly uh, the background of one of the two main characters, uh, the one that isn't Kellen, is based... Uh, heavily on a fairy tale by Hans Christian Andersen. This is a character called Nettle. She spent three years as a heron when her stepmother cursed her and Nettle's three siblings into taking the forms of birds. Different birds, which turned out to be a bit unfortunate, since they, um, not all of them were uh, compatible, shall we say. Well, that's partly based on the fairy tale Wild Swans. Mm-hmm. In Wild Swans, there is a a stepmother who curses her 11 stepsons to become swans, and the only person that she doesn't cast is her stepdaughter. Uh, The stepdaughter finds herself in another country trying to find ways to lift the curse on her brothers, and she discovers that the only way she can do this is by knitting nettles into shirts, and she's not allowed to speak all the time she's doing this, and of course this is quite a long project. Meanwhile, the, the king of the country she's now in discovers this silent nettle knitting girl and thinks, aha, I am in love with her. I will marry her. And, and then the, and his archbishop persuades him that, no, this girl is a witch. So he decides to burn her instead. Uh, and she's actually in the cart on the way to the stake to be burned when the swans fly down and she throws the shirts over them and they all change back into her brothers, except for the youngest, because she hasn't quite finished his shirt. So he's still got a swan wing. And then they, they can explain the misunderstanding and she can explain the misunderstanding. And the king marries her instead. And I remember reading this and thinking, I, I have some questions. <laughs> um, and one of them, one of them was, I, I, is marrying this man actually a happy ending? Because he was going to burn you about five minutes ago. But another question was, what's going to happen to this poor guy with the swan wing? What's his life going to be like now? Is he okay? Come to think of it, are any of them actually like to be all right? They've actually spent quite a long time as swans. And that doesn't seem like something you'd just be able to shrug off. And the last question was, what caused the stepmother to curse her stepchildren in that way? It's it's not really enough to say that she was wicked or that she was jealous. Yeah. Where do you find that level of hate for a group of young people? What happened to her before this story even started? What's so interesting is that one we did an episode with another author. This is way back in March. And she referenced a story about a girl who had to knit shirts of nettles for her brothers. And she couldn't remember who it was. And we didn't know. And now you've just you've solved that mystery for us. Hooray! But... The point that we sort of made was it might not be so bad to have a swan arm because there are worse body parts that you could have still be like a swan. 
Um, that is true. I mean, if you had a normal head on the top of a swan neck... You wouldn't be able to lift it. I mean, that would be really inconvenient. Yes, I, I mean, there would be certain advantages. You'd be able to see above Krauss very easily. You know, you have, you've got to raise your head above the sort of cluster of <laughs> selfie sticks. Um, but but also disadvantages. You, you, you might get it stuck in underground doors and things. Imagine having a normal body and then just a swan tail. Like, it's hard enough as a woman to find clothes to fit you anyway, let alone adding a swan tail Indeed. into that. Or the little feet. They might look all right in shoes. <laughs> Would you say that was your favourite fairy tale curse? Or do you have... Well, what's your favourite fairy tale curse? Oh, I've got quite a few, actually. I think mine... Mine would be the red shoes, where she's cursed to dance to her death. And I think there's another story with 12 princesses yes. and they're cursed to dance for a certain amount of time. I quite like that idea. Well, I don't like the idea. I wouldn't like to do it. But... <laughs> you like that idea. <laughs> but out of all of them, they're not being transformed into anything. I mean, they still, I guess, it's until death. So probably still not a good idea. No, that still doesn't sound ideal. <laughs> not really. I guess there's, well, there's Blodderwood. Okay. who is changed into an owl. And she, of course, she goes through two transformations. First of all, she's transformed from flowers into a girl and then from a girl into an owl. And it does beg interesting questions about whether that counts as a curse cast in anger or a, a just act, her, her, her true form showing through. Uh, who gets to decide that? I think that's why... Some of what you've done with with this is quite interesting. We sort of want to get into that idea of true forms a bit later, because we don't want to do spoilers yet. <laughs> In a world where anyone can cast a life-destroying curse, only one person has the power to unravel them. Kellen does not fully understand his unique gift, helps those who are cursed, like his friend Nettle, who was trapped in the body of a bird for years. She is now Kellen's constant companion and his closest ally. But the unraveller carries a curse himself, and unless he and Nettle can remove it, Kellen is a danger to everything and everyone around him. Well, straight away in the book, we learn that there are creatures called little brothers, and I'm assuming they look like spiders? They do. They look a lot like spiders. Uh, those who know can tell the difference. Are they named little brothers to seem friendlier? Yes. Uh, there are some, some parts of the human population that actually regard them really quite affectionately. Well, I know everyone's got a certain affection for them, but makers craftsmen and particularly weavers regard the little brothers as you know little friends because the little brothers are actually quite protective over uh, over makers and in particular their you know their fellow human weavers this this partly results in them having very strong opinions about any machinery that they may uh, they they may feel might be taking taking work away from these makers so uh, they, don't, but they haven't actually sort of sent the, the human government a, a, a list of machines that are forbidden, but it means that if there's a machine that, that, that the little brothers don't approve of and 
somebody uses it, they find themselves covered with very angry um, spider-like creatures. Uh, and that is literally the only way to find out whether a certain machine is okay in Radith or not. You use it and find out whether you're covered with angry spiders. That seems a bit harsh. <laughs> I'm sure the people covered in angry spiders think so. <laughs> so can you explain the connection in the book between the little brothers and curse eggs for our listeners who haven't read the book yet. Certainly. Now, the little brothers are creatures of the wilds. There are quite a lot of beings and entities and creatures and animals that live there. And most of them don't come into human territory very much, mostly because there is a pact between the human population of Radith and the wilds. However, the little brothers have special dispensation to come into human territory. And as far as they're concerned, they're helping people who need it. So as well as, well as standing up for weavers and, and things like that, if they find somebody who seems really upset, you know, has a, has a powerful sense of grievance, then they give them this curse egg because they, you know, then they can, they can right, right this wrong. They can, they can, uh, they can even the odds. They think they're helping. In your personal opinion, are they something bad? I'd certainly say they weren't evil. Their attention, their intentions are entirely good. Well, good in a eldritch spider kind of way. <laughs> they're not human and they don't completely understand humans. Actually, that might be an understatement. And are there any stories in the real world connecting spiders and curses is there anything you found not as far as i'm aware that doesn't mean there aren't any it it doesn't even rule out the possibility of of me having encountered one at some point and then unconsciously imbibed it i couldn't find anything from a quick google when i looked but i didn't look that hard i i went for spiders because i liked the idea of a curse being something that was unravelled, something that was a knot that took a certain amount of detective work, combined with intuition, in order to pull the strands apart and understand it. And if and if something is being unravelled, then that suggests that there are threads. Therefore, whatever was creating these curses, I felt should be a weaver of some sort. So spiders seemed right. So that came first. The sort of makeup of the curse came first and then the spider creatures came after essentially yes did you have a research process for this book uh, i certainly looked into quite a lot of folklore uh, there were some that i i knew already i already knew that i would be basing the marsh horses on kelpies uh, and tapping into um, some some folk tales already knew and drawing on a, a song called two sisters but I also read up on uh, Northumbrian, Northumbrian folklore because a lot of a lot of those are, are set in sort of marshes, wetlands, places like that, and the marsh woods in in Radith are are a mixture of the forest, which is one of the the the, you know, the primal, the fundamental fairy tale locations. It's the place where you got get lost. It's a place where you can find anything. That combined with the marshes, which are, are the epitome of treacherous land and which have their own legends, like the dancing lights that lure you to your doom of one sort or another. Uh, and 
I did end up there's a uh, there, there's a legend called the I think it's a figure called the old Tiddy man who is a figure that's supposed to uh, haunt some of the Fenlands and who gets incredibly upset if the Fenlands are drained and apparently at one point when a, a lot of draining of the fence was happening there was a, a a lot of disease and flooding and everyone everyone assumed that basically this was the the revenge of the tiddy man and in the end the locals managed to placate the tiddy man by by going to the dikes and pouring pouring water from pans and and saying placating things and and this seemed to calm him down a bit uh, that's something that i did end up incorporating into the history of Radith um, in that there had been a point where the human population had had decided that actually you know, you've, you've got these marsh woods that looks like wasted land why don't we just run dikes through it and then drain the land and then and then build on it and this went badly this went very badly indeed and under those circumstances at the point where the, the human government was suffi sufficiently frightened they sent emissaries into the wild and the, uh, and the pact was signed. Okay. I can't imagine what it must be like to live in a world where you have to try and placate these kinds of beings so that they don't unleash sort of flooding and disease and pestilence and all that kind of horrible bad stuff on you. Well, to a certain extent, most of our ancestors felt that they did live in worlds quite a lot like that. Um and I sometimes feel we're not quite as far from that as uh, as we might be. I mean, we, we, we all develop little superstitious rituals, which we know can't possibly make any actual difference. We talk to electronic equipment. Sometimes we plead with it. Well, I know <laughs> I do. Swear at it, more like. <laughs> well, that yes, that I alternate. <laughs> It's just it's so it's just interesting what people thought before science that this is kind of what they believed. It's kind of nice in a way. Well, we're never before science, really. There is always some form of science. There is always some form of expanding the knowledge that we have, and the, and and sometimes getting things wrong, and sometimes developing. Um, patterns of theories that aren't quite right or have some bits that are just a little bit off kilter but science is knowledge there's 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 always going to be some form of it and everyone always believes firmly in whichever version they've got I think that's a very good point yeah and everyone believes that this is this is the knowledge that they have and their knowledge is superior than what what has come before it is certainly true that there were certainly upticks in empirical science at at certain points in, uh, in, in the world's history. So. This is the point of the episode where I can't believe Lauren is making me say this pun, but we unravel the plot and we talk spoilers. I urge you to go and pick up this masterpiece and rejoin the adventure when you've read the book, as we have immunity from curses, so if spoilers annoy you, go away now. We find out at the beginning of the book that Nettle and her three siblings were cursed by their stepmom. All four turn into something different. One of Nettle's two brothers chose to remain a girl, and this seems to be an object of contention between him and Nettle, and she's angry at him because of his decision. Do you think that's fair? Uh, do you think it... For her to be angry? I think it's certainly very natural. I think 
both Nettle and Yannick, her brother, her gold brother, feel that the other one abandoned them. You know, they, they had a certain connection while they were both birds. In fact, seeing each other and, and feeling that affinity was about the only thing that allowed them to keep some grip on who they were. And that, that intricate connection is still there, but now it's complicated by the fact that, well, one of them's a bird, one of them isn't. So Yannick, Yannick feels that basically Nettle slightly betrayed that by running off to be human. And Nettle feels that Yannick has left her to actually quite a painful, difficult human experience of dealing with her own trauma without actually being there for her or coming down to share it. When cursed, we find out that Cole ate his other sister. How long do you think he'd have blamed himself for? I think these things are complicated because the point at which we rationally know that we are not to blame for something is often considerably in advance of the point where we actually manage to internalise that emotionally. And the latter tends to be a very slow process. And sometimes you, you, you can be rooting out little pockets of guilt for quite a long time afterwards. Well, we do find out that later he seems to have forgiven himself and he's able to bring up more difficult topics with Nettle and then she's unable to cope with them. Yes, indeed. He's, he is actually expressing a lot of his emotions and working through quite a lot of them and actually get to the point where he is able to have these conversations and in many respects, Nettle hasn't been doing that. Nettle has been doing a certain amount of looking after other people, but hasn't been working through quite as many of her own very different, difficult feelings. So seeing her brother actually reaching a point where he can, where he can start forgiving himself, particularly given that she also misses her sister, the, the, the one that uh, was, was sadly killed while she was in dove form, that's very difficult for her for emotionally complicated reasons. When the stepmom cursed them to be birds, obviously you said earlier about the fact that they were birds that were not compatible because one of them killed another one and possibly maybe could have even gone on to kill more. Did she pick the birds on purpose or was it just be birds and then whatever happened happened how much control would she have had i have never specified that no <laughs> and i had i had rather imagined that it was more a release of the curse a desire to transform them but i'm not sure she sat with down with a bird book first i think she <laughs> i i think she probably didn't spend some time thinking like you know no i, I reckon you're a heron so I suspect there was probably at least a facet in each of those siblings that slightly defined which bird they became. That's more what I was wondering. Because we see a few different curses happen throughout the book. Obviously, it's spoilers now so we can talk. But Spike, <laughs> poor Spike, who just seems to attract attract unlucky curses but he's cursed twice and they're both completely different and when 
when Nettle and Kellen are talking about the the second curse, at first sort of thinking, oh, he's a fish. Oh no, his son's, he's been turned into a fish and his son's eaten him. But then they think actually that's not quite cruel enough to turn him into a fish. And they think, oh, what if he's this? Well, that doesn't seem quite right. So that seemed like the person had more control. Yes, absolutely. In that case, it was a very, a very specific wish and curse there was um how how far are we going with the spoilers here are we going to say what he what he actually turns out to be it's up to you we can say okay yes uh in in this case it is very much what the particular cursor sees as a a just punishment for the crime in inverted commas um Spike is very good at making enemies. He has a very short temper. He can be uh, extremely uh, volatile. <laughs> and he's an utter job's worth. He is so meticulous and uncompromising in any role he has that he is completely infuriating, <laughs> uh, which is why he's been... And he, and he also tends to punch people in the face. Um, but that's that's why he's been uh, he's been cursed twice. And in the second case, he was guarding this stretch of canal, and one of the things that he's supposed to um, prevent is people fishing there. So this this person who's fishing there for food, who feels that this is their livelihood being impacted, well, Spike is the last straw. This is this is a person who's not doing well in their life anyway, and he curses Spike basically to be fish bait, undying fish bait. And, and poor Spike spends some time on a hook as a worm being slightly chewed by fish repeatedly. Oh, that's so awful. Yeah. Okay, so in your opinion, in your opinion, just out of interest, do you think that's worse of the two curses that Spike has to endure? Do you th- which one do you think is worse, the f- the fish bait or the tree? Well, the, the tree. Bear in mind what happens to the yes, tree. Yes, uh, the first time he's cursed, he is turned into a tree, which doesn't sound too bad, uh, unless, uh, for example, the tree is then sawn down and its timbers used to make a boat. So he is then spending a lot of his custom as a significant part of a boat. This is not particularly comfortable. <laughs> Thankfully, when he's when he's changed back, uh, he he's not neatly sliced in planks, <laughs> and and most of his bits are still are there, not all of them, but most of them, which is is better than one might expect. So, which do you think is worse? Okay, I'm, I'm, it's difficult to say which is worse. I think the worm's pretty bad. I think I think basically being <laughs> submerged in freezing water continually and nibbled by fish while having a hook through you. Now I think that's pretty bad. But neither, neither of them are nice. Neither of them are nice. On pages 50 and 51, Kellen cures Spike for the first time. And Nettle tells Kellen because he appears as a naked man in some huge degree of distress. And Nettle says to Kellen that they need to get him some clothes. And Kellen's a bit like, why? And she says, you can't keep doing this. You can't just transform somebody, then leave them naked and stunned in the mud. You've got a responsibility to him. 
And Kellen says he doesn't because Spike is a grown man. But what do you think? Because in this instance with Spike, Spike's given no consent that he wants to be cured. I mean, we can assume he probably does. But do you think that Kellen has a degree of responsibility? I think he sort of does. Uh, I mean, I, his, his response is, again, very human. It's, it's very natural. I mean, he's, I mean, he's a 15-year-old boy with a gift. He is the person that has this insight into the threads of a curse and has the ability to work out what needs to be done to unravel them. But to a certain extent, that's the easy bit. <laughs> you do it. And then there's a there's a definite end point, and at that point it's fixed, and and that and and you've won, hooray! That's very satisfying. Um, dealing with the aftermath is much harder because then you've got a person who is traumatized and upset, and may have lost a, a portion of their life to something something extremely traumatic, and and he and Kellen doesn't know how to deal with that at all. So he sort of tends to run away from the situation. And I think it's completely understandable, but also a bit of a failing. Because he says to Nettle, oh, Nettle says someone needs to look after him right now. And Callan then says, well, don't look at me. I already saved him. And Nettle corrects him. You started saving him. Does he look safe to you? And I guess she can speak from that personal experience because when Kellen cured her he wasn't expecting he was then going to be lumbered with with her following him around indeed but uh yes she's I mean to a certain extent she's she's lost her family home uh no her 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 father and stepmother are no longer around her her older brother the one who is shall we say recovering is in a sanatorium and Yannick's a gull I mean he's he's flying around all over the place he's you know she's she's sold the family home in a in so that she can pay for the sanatorium fees for Carl so what else has she got where else has she got so she follows Kellen and while Kellen is well let's just say aftercare is not his strong suit this is something that Nettle very much starts to take on she starts making sure that all the people whose curses Callum has lifted stay in contact with each other and they form something of a, a support network because she understands what it's like. She can, she can understand something of their situation in a way that a lot of people wouldn't. Nettle is very sweet. Nettle is complicated. She is, but say I want to hug her. She wouldn't like that. <laughs> but... Just, I just kind of want to look after her a little bit. I feel like she needs it. I know what you mean. One of the big sort of fallouts between Nettle and Yannick is when she finds out that he had a girl family in one of the moments where he kind of, I'll say lost himself, but he was in his kind of, that's his Yannick self organic brain and then gull brain it goes off and does what gulls do and they have they make gull babies and she seemed really upset about this well, he, he is to a certain extent the only family that she's got left that she can talk to 
and even he's not there all the time and he's just been gone for several months and then she finds out he's made a new family uh, and she is aware that her her feelings of resentment aren't fair but again I think they're quite understandable I tried hard not to judge her for that <laughs> and I tried yeah. to be understanding but also it's I get the impression that it's not something he can no. help because you mentioned anchors later on and how he he feels a lot more anchored into his human brain when he's around nettle compared to when he sort of goes off and is around other gulls and then he does gull stuff yes I mean for all Yannick's talk about you know flying everywhere and freedom and so forth he is in some ways dominated by his connections which which makes him quite it makes it quite suitable that he's a black-headed girl less sociable they tend to form really big colonies on page 85 there's a line powerful people wave a piece of paper and the world dances to their tune it's the powerless people who need curses then we come along and take away the only thing they have left so do you think that we should look at curses as a form of power for the powerless what you do in unraveler is different to a lot of other stories where curses are often the tool for the powerful it's i guess what i was trying to show is that the picture is complicated that it isn't straightforward that some some curses are motivated entirely by malice and others have actually a legitimate grievance or at least an understandable grievance so at the, at the very start of the book kellen is talking to somebody who has hired him to lift his curse but with whom Kellen has no sympathy at all because he is aware that this this merchant who has been cursed so that blood will continually ooze from the palm of his hands well he's been cursed in that way for well for for, for because he the, the person who cursed him sees him exactly that way as someone who is mistreating everyone who works for him or is any way reliant on him uh, so badly that he, he effectively has blood on his hands. In fact, even even that cursor has in fact killed themselves. And, and certainly that that particular curse victim is not a very sympathetic figure. But there are there are other um, other curse victims that are considerably more sympathetic, where the curse itself has been used as a a rather sinister form of control or uh, as a way of unleashing unjustified hatred or venting one's bitterness against the world. Researching for this interview, I, I looked up curses and they found ancient Greek and Roman tablets with curse tablets. And it is a way of listing how someone has done you wrong, basically. And I can just imagine them being really petty. Oh, absolutely. Uh, if you go to Bath, they have lots of little tablets that were, were thrown into the water. And, and, it's, and, and they're not curses like, um, you know, bring great woe upon the person who wronged my sister. It's it's things like, while I was in the bath, someone stole all my clothes and I hope their nose falls off. You know, well, I paraphrase a bit, but not very much. <laughs> I guess this is the problem with the little brothers, isn't it? That they don't, they just see this person that's unhappy and they won't sit there and be like, so what's no. wrong? Like, tell me your grievances and then give them the curse. Absolutely. I mean, they, they, yeah, they don't really... They don't really people properly. They're spiders. <laughs> but they're special spiders. They're special spiders, yes. Is the story of Pale Mallow based on anything in real life? Ah, oh, that story of Pale Mallow. 
Not particularly, I, I think. I mean, there are uh, there are plenty of folk tales of entities that that live under in, you know under the water in marshland, etc. So, poor pale mallow is partly based on figures like Jenny Greenteeth. Uh, to explain, a a woman named Belthia is cursed by persons unknown so that she becomes effectively this this bog witch this this um, wraith-like creature that that lives in and and under and around the marshes and occasionally rises up out of them and then tries to drown men and boys uh, and and she's she's not something you can defend against using the um, the usually usual fairy tale offences of of cold iron because she's human she's just a cursed individual so i think she's she's slightly uh, she's slightly inspired by figures like jenny greenteeth who would be a figure that you would tell your children lived in the mill pond under that nice green mantle and she's just waiting there for children to get close so that she can grab you, pull you in the water and drown you. They, they, they are cautionary tales. But in the case of Pale Mallow, unfortunately, she's quite real. On page 142, so this is after, so Callan and Nettle have gone to cure Pale Mallow, basically. They've been sent there as part of, as part of their journey. And there's a lot of men who used to fancy her when she was human. I think that's a bit of an understatement of a few. It's like all of the men. And the wife of one of them says that she wants Belthea to be cured or Palmella to be cured because she wants the rival <laughs> she can punch. Excellent. I loved that. But I also like the fact that she then volunteered to let the cured Belthea live next door. And actually, she helps take care of her. And she is an inspirational woman like I wouldn't do that for my old love rival. Can't imagine many people would. Yes, I, I'm. I'm quite fond of Mrs. Javert. She's. Uh, but there are there are just people like that though who are just seem to be just made of pragmatism and warmth. And they are they are they are excellent individuals, and the world needs as many of them as possible. But I. I sometimes like having minor characters that you might sort of assume were just. Sort of subsidiary show aspects of themselves that make you realise perhaps what they are in their family or perhaps what they are in their community, and and get a and get a glimpse of something more. I sort of like the fact that she went against a stereotype of what you would expect in someone when Indeed. dealing with their love. Well, people do all the time. But yes, I I, I like that too. That was quite deliberate. <laughs> I can honestly say I wouldn't have done it. I am I am petty. <laughs> I'm sad to say, but I am a petty individual. You're writing out those cursed tablets. <laughs> <laughs> I would be. I would be. Like I said, I would have birthed a few cursed eggs on the world <laughs> if they were real. So I should stay on your good side then. Yeah. Stay, stay. Yeah. Oh, you, you're definitely on my good side. <laughs> don't worry. <laughs> How often do you think people would have had cursed eggs inside them and not actually cursed someone? Would it have been difficult to resist unleashing curse, curse eggs? I think it would have been very difficult, uh, but not impossible. 
as to how many. I deliberately left that vague and I'm not sure I could I could give a population percentage, but almost certainly significantly more than most people in Radith would think. Okay. And Nettle doesn't like hugs because of her curse and how they make her feel. Do you think this could have been a common response from curse victims? I think it, I think it'd be quite likely that you could come out of cur- being cursed with a, what are two trust issues? So proximity is going to you know, proximity might feel a bit odd, but I think it might also depend on what you were cursed into being. Mm. Uh, in in the case of Nettle, she was a heron, so the 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 prospect of a large mammal coming around and sort of encasing her that's that's if, if 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 you're a wading bird, that's that's quite a scary concept. That's not something that one can settle into particularly easily. So I think what one ends up having some issues with will probably depend on the form of one's curse. We meet Tansy in the story, who's also an ex-curse victim, and she was turned into a musical instrument by someone who considered her a love rival even though she really wasn't. And she seems to have done quite well in dealing with her trauma. Because you say, or the book says, at first she'd been able to, she'd been unable to bear music and she had to leave anytime someone was singing or playing. And now she actually seems to enjoy it. And she says, I can't hide from music forever. Actually, that being a sort of traumatic thing for her because of what she was. And she seems to have done such an amazing job. So why do you think that she found it easier to deal with her trauma? This is, of course, an interesting question. Sorry, <laughs> um, yes, uh, that that is very difficult to answer without significant spoilers. So, how how far into spoiler verse are we going? Oh, that's that's a really significant spoiler. So. Should we hang back from that one, do you think? We can hang back from that one. What would you say to Nettle, if you could? So imagine Nettle was with you right now. And Nettle, she sort of struggles when she looks at Tansy. And she says, like her inner monologue sort of says, there she is, look at her. Why can't I be like that? Why am I like this? And she feels very jealous when she looks at her. So what would you say to Nettle, if you could? to help her when she judges herself for not being more like Tansy? I'd say everyone's a mess. (laughs) I'd say some of us hide it better than others. I'd say you're doing better than most. (laughs) Which she would not believe, of course. Uh, I think think she would not believe me in a thousand years. So Callan seemingly gets his curse unraveling powers from a situation that happens with a little brother when little brother is is killed when it's about his person and obviously kellen was a weaver so would it have had a different impact do you think if kellen had been a different kind of craftsperson say like a blacksmith or a carpenter uh i think if he hadn't been a weaver he wouldn't have found himself in that situation, with that little brother, forging a form of camaraderie and ultimately being bestowed with its uh, its gift in a slightly painful way. I'd, yes, I don't think... I'd, if, he'd, if he'd been a blacksmith's son 
I don't think he would have featured in this story. I don't think he would ever have met that little brother. And certainly the, the transference of that gift would not have occurred, I think. As I say, little brothers like weavers. They do. Where did the idea come from that Kellen would feel left out when Nettle and Yannick talk to each other? He he can't understand them and it it bothers him when she translates because he can feel gaps. So do you think she would often have left gaps? Is he being paranoid? Uh, he's not exactly being paranoid. There, there are bound to be gaps because if you are trying to give a precy of a rather emotionally fraught tele- um, telepathic communication that you're having with your girl brother, it's it's not going to be necessarily something that you can re- relay word for word. <laughs> um, and, it, and it is a private conversation. So she's not, she's not deliberately hiding things or being evasive. It's just that there will be gaps. And I think Kellen partly feels left out because... Well, actually, he doesn't have a family either. Uh, he had one and then, for various reasons, got turfed out of his community. So this this has bruised him emo- emotionally more than he quite faces up to. And we're, in the case of Nettle and Yannick, he is witnessing a connection that he's not a part of. And he's never really quite classified Nettle in his head as to whether she's she's a sort of replacement family member or what but there is this bond between her and Yannick where he doesn't he doesn't have an in exactly all all he all he knows of their conversations is what yeah is what Nettle tells him in this world that you have created do you think it's easy for people to judge those who have curse eggs inside or who would have unleashed the curses because it's easy to judge but surely the difficulty is would be in resisting the cursing. I think people are much more judgmental when they're frightened and people are very afraid of curses. And again, that's very human. But of course, so is anger. (laughs) So you have one set of human beings who are responding to extremely intense emotions and are sometimes as much a victim of those emotions as as anybody that they might curse, um, who are then uh, feared and incarcerated by the rest of the population. Surely most people who were scared of the the people with curse eggs, they might be tempted to curse if the shoe was on the other foot. It's it's entirely possible, but people are not always good at imagining other people's shoes on their feet, so to speak. Have I have I just completely mangled that metaphor? I may have done. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. I thought that's one of the things about the book that was really interesting like the whole idea of the the hospital where people some people could could go if they felt they had a curse egg inside them they could say i need help i want to want to be here so i don't hurt anybody but also people would be taken there if they had cursed or even if they were suspected it's like we think you might have a curse egg inside you because you're showing symptoms so therefore we're going to put you in there so you can't hurt anybody Indeed, uh, this is the Red Hospital, uh, so named because of the rust. There's an awful lot of iron in and covering this hospital, hence the fact that it can actually stop these curses from being able to curse. There's no other way to actually stop a curse being cast. You know, you, uh, a potential victim can't wear iron, that won't help. 
but about the only thing you can do is find the cursor and just cover them with iron, you know, put as much iron on them and around them as you possibly can, and then they can't release the curse egg. But that, of course, then means that there they are with a curse egg inside them that isn't going anywhere, so they're probably not leaving. Do you think that would affect them? Like have, just having this this curse egg inside them and not being able to 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 deal with it, even in a positive way? I think having a curse egg inside them and being un- un- unable to release them will affect them. I think being incarcerated and covered with shackles and an iron helm and held in a big red hospital is also quite likely to affect them. Yeah, that's a really good point, actually. <laughs> I guess they're not a good combination together no, either. No, I mean, if, if, if the problem that you originally had was anger and rage um, and general resentment of the world, um, that's probably not going to reduce it. I want to talk to you a little bit about the idea of redemption in the book. Because we have the Red Hospital where people go when they've cursed. And it could be that they they don't curse again. You do say in the book that people who have cursed, they do often curse more than once. That is certainly what is believed. But then there are some people like Clover. I think Clover's very interesting because she has, I would say, quite justified grievance against one person who mistreated her for a really long time and then shows great remorse afterwards the fact that she tries to the fact she curses her mum because her mum's mistreated her and then she leaves food out for her and wants to try and do something she talks to her and genuinely feels bad I think it's interesting that Nettle chooses to let her go well yes indeed um well Clover is a very sympathetic figure uh I mean, her pent-up rage is actually pretty understandable. And Nettle makes an assessment of her and thinks that actually, if she is once and for all away from her mother, she's probably not going to be a threat to anyone. I mean, it, it is still a risk. It is still Nettle making a judgment call, but quite an empathic one. In your opinion, do you think that she's Clover is still a risk? Now that she's away from that village? Probably not. I think I think Nettle probably made the right call. I do. It seems like that's how they should be treating people in the Red Hospital, case by case. Case by case is definitely uh, definitely a better approach, and I guess that's that's one one of the uh, one of the things that uh, hopefully becomes clear in the book that all these cases are different. That they're not all not every curse is rooted in fundamental malevolence. I mean, one or two of them kind of are, but but a lot really aren't. A lot of it's just humans being human. Like the person at the beginning of the book with the merchant, the the person who kills himself for cursing the merchant to have blood on their hands. I think that's completely justified as well. And if the merchant had learnt, that would have been quite a productive curse. Obviously, he was never going to. Yeah, unfortunately, he's, he was very resistant to the prospect of uh, taking on board the, the idea of his own cul- um, culpability which is why uh, Kellen ends up yelling at him. That's why he has Kellen arrested as well. <laughs> yes. Kellen. Uh, Kellen, for all his faults, does does have a streak of idealism and a healthy disrespect for authority, or sometimes unhealthy, um, d- depending on whether it's, it's his health you're trying to preserve. Taking on board that sense of idealism that Kellen had, if he'd fully understood 
the situation with the merchant and why the merchant was cursed and what kind of a person he was, do you think he would have still agreed to try and remove the curse on him? Hard to say. Possibly at the point where he was aware that the path to lifting the curse, in the merchant's case, was contrition and atonement and course correction. Of course, the merchant was never going to be up for this. <laughs> but yes, I think it's possible that Kellen would still have tried. There's one more thing I really want to sort of discuss in the big fallout between Nettle and Yannick. And some of this is to do with them both feeling abandoned. And some of it is to do with him having his girl family. And Yannick sort of says to her, why do you have to be human? And she asks him if he was happy. And he says to her, you know, it doesn't work like that. I don't think about being happy unless I'm with you. And then I never am. Humans are never happy. I just thought it was quite an interesting idea. Do you think Nettle is happy? Like, do you think she regrets her decision to be human? I don't... I don't think she actually does, but there's a difference between not regretting a decision and actually being happy where you where you find yourself. The the thing is she's gone from one situation where she was sort of a heron but had this terrible recurrent gnawing awareness that she wasn't, that actually she's supposed to have a brain, but she's not able to think straight and ah um, and now she's gone to being a person. But unfortunately, now being able to process all her trauma and have quite a lot of memories from when she was a heron, some of which make her incredibly unhappy and which she hasn't fully processed. And where at the same time, even her cure feels like a bit of a bereavement. Not only, uh, not only does she now have to face the fact of her actual bereavement, the, the, the loss of Iris, her sister, but... She can't fly now. The body that she'd actually got used to, she's, she hasn't got that anymore. And now she's got, well, she's, she's older than she was. This has been three years. So even her body feels a bit unfamiliar and she's still, she's still having to get, get used to using it. So she still doesn't feel quite one thing or another. She still doesn't feel like she fits and that maybe there isn't actually a place now where she fits. I think that's why it's really nice that she does set up the support group for people so that they they still have that connection to people that would understand. I, th I think it's a very necessary facility. There's not enough of that in fairy tales. Ex-cursed support groups. <laughs> that's why this book was so appealing because you just do something that's so different. Oh, thank you. And like with, with Balthea, when she becomes human again, she can't use a spoon. And it's just something that we take for granted, but who's to say that if you can't, do something for a long time like I broke my wrist and I couldn't use so I couldn't use it for a month and then after the cast came off everything hurts at first I'm sure anyone who's broken anything would have that same thing so everything became instantly more difficult and that was a month of me not being able to use something let alone like years of not being able to to walk or to talk or to eat or any of these things and no book shows that I thought that's something that was so magical that you Thank did you very much in this and just it stood out so much 
because curses are thrown around so much in fairy tales but no one really seems to think about what comes after and it's interesting looking at trauma as well through this book even though it's people go through totally different types of trauma but it's still looking at different ways your book looks at different ways that people process it and I just thought that was so interesting yes that was that was one of the points of uh, of the book so I'm end of fangirling now <laughs> oh. what factors would affect how badly a curse affected a person and like in the sense that Lydia was turned into a bat and she seemed to quickly lose herself but it was pretty quick and Yannick goes in and out of it depending on when he's with Nettle and when he's in the wild so what factors came into play was it in the intention of the curse sir uh it partly it partly depends well it depends on a number of different factors uh in the case of nettle and yannick the fact that they managed to forge uh, a sort of an almost a spirit spirit connection while they were both birds is one of the reasons that they were able to hang on to themselves a little bit during that time um because there, there was this already this this strong emotional bond um, and that is, and that that link has basically endured even now that one of them's human. Which is why, uh, when Yannick is is close to Nettle, he is more pulled into his his human way of thinking. But as as you were saying, when when he's when he leaves Nettle, he sometimes just he sometimes just loses himself in being a gull, uh, and and it's only when he feels essentially a tug on that cord, that connection, that he sort of remembers again and, and finds himself heading back to find Nettle. As for the bat, the bat had a, had a certain advantage as well, uh, in that the uh, the lady appraiser, who who is cursed to become a bat, happened to have a, a certain cameo that, that, they, that had been bought from one of the moonlit markets in the wilds. And it was effectively a means of communicating long distance with one of her underlings, a, a slightly a slightly sinister individual called Gaul. So she had a, she had a means of communicating, even though she she was even though she was a bat, because this this cameo was effectively thought operated. She could uh, she could get the cameo to talk talk, talk to Gaul, and therefore there is at least some form of a connection there is some way in which she can try and hold on to herself a little bit try and kind of keep her mind clear with varying degrees of success uh, particularly when she gets hungry then she she becomes particularly distracted by the 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 sound of moths and anything that sounds tasty and finds it a little harder to focus on you know being a person I like that little detail because I I find it hard to focus on I'm hungry as a person, let alone. <laughs> Likewise, is the bat curse the reason there's a moon on the on the cover? Actually, there's another character uh, known as Cook, who turns up much later, and who was at one who is basically cursed that at certain phase at a certain phase of the moon, one night in the month. Any other human beings within about a mile of him die. So he's living out in the wilds. I was so, I was <laughs> so, it could be so a, sure it was the bats. Nope, I'm afraid uh, in this case it's uh, 
poor the poor moon cook. Calling him the moon cook is so much less sinister than what it actually is. <laughs> so can you explain the berries as well on the Oh, there's poppy, poppy seeds. seeds. Ah, are there poppy seeds? Uh, those yes. Okay. Yes. That's so that is right, you see you yes. Because that's yeah. I was looking at that. I was like, yes. I'm not sure what that is. That makes sense now. Yes, that's a, a, a reference to that particular curse. Well, thank you so, so much for coming and talking to us today about about your book. We enjoyed it so, so much. And I can't, yeah, I can't wait to share it with, with other people because I think it's fantastic. What other exciting plans do you have coming up? Well, at the moment, uh, I am engaging in some public speaking, not all of it through a video call, some of it to actual people who are in the same room and have torsos and arms and legs and everything. <laughs> so I'm, I am likely to be finding myself in Oswestry and then in Edinburgh uh, later this week. Do you have any plans for another book at the moment that you can talk about or not yet? I have several projects that are actually in motion and most of them I can't talk about. So I'm afraid I'm going to be annoyingly mysterious. Uh, but there, I have first drafts of a couple of shorter works, which I can't talk about yet, and have begun the initial groundwork for another full-length novel, which I can't talk about yet. Do you know how many times people have said that to us? I have this really exciting thing, but I can't talk about it. I'm no so one can. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> Publishing is this mysterious world. It's okay. Where can people find you on socials? Uh, I'm on Twitter. Um, you can find me at at Francis Harding because I'm inventive like that, and I also have a website. If you uh, if you look for www.francisharding.com, you will find me. Do you want to spell your name? I should probably do that. Um, Francis is spelt F R A N C E S, and Harding is spelt H A R D I N G E. There, there is a stealth and unexpected E that gets me pronounced as Hardinge all the time. Yes, Hardinge sounds like some kind of toilet cleaner. <laughs> it's not great. <laughs> it's not great, no. If you hadn't told us before we started recording, I might have called you Hardinge. <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty used to it. We will put all of your details in our episode description so that people will be able to find you and stay up to date with everything that you're doing. And all that exciting stuff you, you can't talk about yet. <laughs> thank you very much. Oh, thank you very much for having well, me. You're very, very welcome. Thanks again for hanging out with us today. And again, special thanks to Francis. Follow us on Instagram at Demythifying the Podcast. And if you like what we're doing, please rate us and subscribe. Also, check out our website at www.demythpod.co.uk. I've been Charlotte, she's been Lauren, and today we've been turning pages with Francis Harding. See you next time.